Welcome to Cooking the Books. I'm Vanessa, your host, and I'm glad you're here. Welcome back, constant listeners. It's been a minute, hasn't it? It's been a busy summer for me, so I let the podcast go by the wayside for a couple of months. But we're back today with an excellent episode and returning guest, Alessandra Pino, who appeared on the episode about the book Rebecca by Daphne du Maurier last year. Allie, as she's affectionately known to her family and friends, is the co-author of A Gothic Cookbook, which riffs on a similar theme to my blog and this podcast. She recreates food that is mentioned in several Gothic novels, including my favorite, the big bad granddad of monsters, Dracula. I am Dracula. I bid you welcome. I think everybody at this point probably knows the story of Dracula and Mina and Jonathan Harker and Dr. Van Helsing and Renfield, so I won't go into detail about the book's plotline. But what I find fascinating about Stoker's vampire is that he has stood the test of time better than any other night creature. There is obviously something about Count Dracula that has perpetually captured general fascination. Writers such as Stephen King, my boy, Anne Rice, Charlene Harris, Elizabeth Kostova, Richard Matheson, and Theodore Sturgeon, to mention just a few, have all used the template of Dracula for their books, and there are vampires everywhere in modern culture. So let's get the blood sucking started, baby. How's everything else? How's your daughter? Did she have her birthday already? Fine. She had, she's going to have her birthday party this Saturday. She'll be six. Okay. Her actual birthday is tomorrow, so I'm organizing everything. And, okay. Um, all, the, all the things that I'm going to make. Okay. And, um, yeah, and I've discovered this new technique for cakes. I just freeze freeze the actual cakes beforehand, defrost them on the day, and then put the icing on and stuff. And yeah. it actually comes out a lot better because it's a bit harder. So then the icing sticks better, if that makes sure. sense. Something yeah, I never used to do before. Just used to make the cake on the day, and it was a real rush, and it was a bit panicky. But now mm-hmm. I will um, I will definitely do this. I've, I just read it online, really. It's just mm-hmm. a tip I read online. Yeah. I'll have to steal that technique because I... I do a lot of baking for uh, family things as well. That's the only yeah. thing about when you're a good cook and your family, they they always expect you to be the one to make the cakes or whatever oh. or anything. So yeah, it's kind of a... Yeah, and it takes a lot of effort and like preparation and they don't always come out the same. Yeah. So I don't know what it is, but like I can make the same cake over and over again and it will be always a little slightly different for some weird reason. Um, so I baked a chocolate cake and it came out I kid you not, it had a little hole in it, like a hot, like a dent. <laughs> that, that's never happened before. What is going on? Right? I don't know though. You could just you could kind of take it and make it like make 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 it into like a something decorative, like put a flower in yeah. it. Like, it remember, did you ever see the movie My Big Fat Greek Wedding? Yes. Okay, so just pretend it's a bunch and put a flower <laughs> in the middle of it. <laughs> I I've love done that. that before. Someone else said to me, just fill right. it up with icing. They'll never know. <laughs> it's true. Or fruit. <laughs> icing mm-hmm. I made a, a an apple yeah banana cake a couple of years ago for a blog post um and mm-hmm. it was very very it was I should have baked it longer because it was super moist in the center like it didn't cook all the way through yeah and it was it was in a, in a ring uh yeah ring tin so I had to just basically cut like probably half of the center out of it and it looked awful so I just threw a bunch of raspberries in and put, put Everybody left it there like this is the best cake. Exactly. When it's someone else's cake, you know because it's your cake, so you can see all the flaws. Exactly. Someone else can't tell. So yes. Yeah, Yeah. I I I, I'm a firm believer in never, never, you know, pointing out the flaws in your food because if you know if if you don't point them out, they likely won't notice them. So there you go. Exactly. They're too busy eating. (laughs) Well, I have uh, some good news, Vanessa. I have since become a doctor. I finished Congratulations. my Dr. Alessandra Pino. That's Thank wonderful, you. Allie. That's so awesome. Congratulations. It so was you. um yeah, it was it meant so much to me and it was a very emotional time. So yes. was well, you worked very hard on it. You were right at the end of it the last time we spoke when we talked about yes. Rebecca, I remember. So yes. So yeah. Good for you. Congratulations. Now Thank I can you. tell you a genuine doctor. Yes, <laughs> not of the useful kind in any way, like, you know, <laughs> but um... right. I am, um, when I was in graduate school, uh, I never got my doctorate, but I had thought that, you know, what, you know, once I 
finished my master's, I would go on and get a PhD. And I started thinking about it. And I thought, you know, I really like the sound of Dr. Vanessa Buck. And I, that was literally the only reason I was going to go to graduate school. So I started wow. thinking about it and thought, you know, no, I don't have the money. Never too I late. I started mine when I was 39. Um, so pretty late. So yeah, so yeah, it's never too late, really. I think that's wonderful. Well, again, congratulations. How exciting. Yeah. How are things going with the, the Gothic cookbook? Are you, are you fully funded? We are not fully funded yet, but just 9% away. So okay. hopefully, yeah. So okay. hopefully we're doing some more kind of social media things. It's a bit slow at the moment, but it's picking up a bit. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, it always slows down um, at start, certain points. We, we can't really work out why, and, and then it picks up again. So mm -hmm. Who knows? Yeah, kind of ebb and flow. Yeah, yeah I, 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 I'm gonna. Um, I intend. I'm. I plan on supporting the cookbook. I haven't had a chance to. What I, the tier that I wanted was tea with Mrs. Danvers. Can you? Can you? Can you coordinate that? Can you bring tea across the pond? Oh, we can't bring it all the way there. I think it has to be. <laughs> it has to be in the UK. Oh, I know. I saw that. The and UK. I like, Damn it. <laughs> I could, I could come to the UK. I have friends who live there. So, you know, and, and I know, and I now know a doctor. So there we go. <laughs> yeah. No, I just thought that was so great. So yeah, so you'll be, uh, so we'd be expecting a, a, a donation from me. I'm very excited to get that. Oh, book. thank very you excited. so much. That's really cool. Oh, yeah. right. so Even excited. this podcast is just, you know, enough to get word out again for those who oh, yeah. don't know about it and stuff like that. So yeah. that's, that's so, really it help as well yeah so yeah. for the listeners who may not know about your book you want to talk a little bit about it yeah sure so um we are writing a gothic cookbook i am co-authoring it with ella bucken and the illustrations are by lee henry of ounce of style and yes it's um it's a great project and the only gothic cookbook in the world so far i mm -hmm. have to say so it's um yeah it's really exciting and um, basically we are, yes, just going to take 13 famous Gothic novels mm -hmm. and look at the food items in them. And that will inspire us to um, craft some recipes based on, on those stories. Um, and some of the books that we, we look at are obviously Rebecca, I've talked about Rebecca mm -hmm. with you before, um, Dracula, Frankenstein, um, the Woman in Black um, and um, The Haunting of Hill House, for example, Rosemary's Baby, which is one of my favorites. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, it's really, really exciting. And we're 91% funded so far. So it's really been great. And um, people have taken really well to the idea of a Gothic cookbook. Even oh, though it's fantastic. A little it's, bit. Um, I love that idea. idea. Yeah. <laughs> you actually inspired me to start kind of putting together something along the, the, the same lines, not specific to goth, but um, I've been putting together recipes based on uh, the works of Stephen King because I'm a huge Stephen King fan. Fantastic. So I actually think somebody else might have already had that idea, but you know, there, who says there can't be more than one Stephen King cookbook in the world, right? Absolutely. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I've been working on that and um, yeah, I'm trying to decide if I should self-publish or try and get a book agent. So I may pick your brain a little bit about self-publishing um, after the yeah. after done with the interview. Yeah. That'd be great. But so, um, yeah. okay, great. Um, so uh, we speaking of Dracula, that's the uh, book and uh, the the topic we're going to talk about in today's uh, podcast episode for cooking the books. And I'm really grateful you've taken the time being that you are a busy doctor now and you're getting ready for your daughter's birthday tomorrow. So thank you so much. I really appreciate it. When was the uh, first time that you ever read Dracula? I read Dracula when I was quite young, actually, perhaps too young to read mm -hmm. it, um, mm -hmm. probably around the age of 13. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's a normal age to read that, but it was a classic and, you know, um, there are just some images that belong to the Gothic, which are particularly striking. Like yeah. if you take the ghostly figures of Quinn and Miss Jessel in The Turn of the Screw, for instance, by Henry James, or, you know, The Woman in Black by Susan Hill and the way she glides towards mm -hmm. Arthur Kipp. And then the floating boy at the window in Salem's Lot by Stephen oh. King. Oh. Yeah. And along yeah. with these really haunting mm -hmm. images is probably one of the scariest scenes from any novel that I can remember. Yeah. From such a young age. And that's Dracula crawling out of the window and down the side of the castle. Mm -hmm. So it's still, that will still send shivers down my spine today. Um, sure. And I think 
yeah, perhaps I was a little too young to read it, but. Oh, I know. <laughs> what for, for people who are maybe not as familiar with elements of the Gothic that you and I are, what are some classic Gothic elements that you find in, in you know, literature that is considered Gothic? Obviously, there's got to be either a castle or a big kind of eerie, scary mansion, but what are some other elements? Yeah, I think the Gothic is, I mean, it's such a great genre because it can really comprise different elements. So you can get kind of that claustrophobic feeling of being inside a castle, like in Dracula, um, or in a house, for example, such as in Jane Eyre, or you can get, um, you know, big icy landscapes like Frankenstein and wild moors, heaths, like in um, Wuthering Heights. Mm -hmm. So it's a genre that really caters to all kinds of different tastes when it comes to um, landscapes that are meant to evoke a sense of horror and terror. And I think that's the beauty of the Gothic. Um, mm -hmm. There are some, obviously, things that are some key elements, like you will often find the supernatural um, in the later Gothic, uh, perhaps not in the earlier Gothic, such as Anne Radcliffe, it's the supernatural explained. So in the end, it turns out not to be a real ghost, but it was, you know, mm -hmm. explainable in human form mm -hmm. and um and yes um you know there's this gothic architecture that just gives you a sense of something that's bigger than than yourself so you mm -hmm. feel quite small when you're inside it so um mm -hmm. i don't know dungeons forests um also the idea of kind of the woman as um, a figure that's on the margins of society and mm -hmm. the adventure that that, um, that it entails. Um, and that's something which is specific to the Gothic as well. Sure, the, the, dam the kind of classic damsel in distress, but maybe with a yeah. twist. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then you get, quite frankly, some things which are really weird, like, you know, in the castle of Otranto, a big helmet falling from the sky. So you can <laughs> get these bizarre um, elements as well that are a little bit outside of the realms of mm -hmm. anything that you can imagine. Um, mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, so it's it's great. There, yeah. there are lots of different and sometimes contrasting elements that um, mm -hmm. compose the Gothic. Yeah, For in Dracula, I think it's interesting that they have, you know, the two female protagonists who are, you know, Mina and Lucy, who, who start off as, as being damsels in distress. And at the end, they are both transformed into, you know, they're, they're definitely not damsels in distress at the end. No, they're not. Um, it's great. I just feel like there is an abundance of kind of the male figure around them as well, you know, trying to solve the problems and um, and not quite managing. And then, you know, yes. it's, a, it's really an adventure, but it does mm -hmm. center around this, you know, trying to save, um, save these two women. Mm -hmm. I know, yes. It's interesting that um, I, I think Bram Stoker himself was quite ill as a child and I think from the age of seven he was bedridden and um, and of course at that time they used to um, take blood and so he would often probably have doctors around him mm -hmm. quite a kind of stooped way over him trying to um, mm -hmm. take blood to, to relieve him of his of his illness and it kind of feels like that's the figure of kind of Dracula over a human mm -hmm a human being um, doing what he does, you know, yeah. putting his, his fangs into, into the victim. Mm -hmm. um, so I wonder if that played a part in, in how he portrays the victims. And, um, and interestingly, um, something else which, um, which is never, because there are so many other representations of Dracula and we see so many films yeah. and obviously we always think that Dracula gets killed with a stake through the heart, when in fact, um, he doesn't, so he gets killed. I think it's um, to the throat initially. Yes. Um, but Lucy, Lucy does get staked, so mm -hmm. she is the one that does get um, killed. Yeah, sorry, spoilers, but I think everyone knows. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh, sorry. Uh, listeners, constant listeners out there, spoiler alert. Allie and I are going to totally destroy the ending of the book for you, so <laughs> FYI. We're going to talk about lots of interesting uh, analysis analyses of the book over the years. So um, yes, because it's interesting to contrast this book with a lot of vampire literature that is out now, uh, modern literature. It's interesting in a way because, um, you know, I've always thought that 
Dracula, if you want to look at it from a you know moralistic standpoint, you know, you, the, kind of one of the overarching themes is, is deliverance. Um, you know, kind of it, there's a lot of religion in the book as well as uh, you know other elements. But you know, the figure of Dracula, I was thought he's very romantic in a way, um, yeah. whether that was intentional or not. But he obviously yeah. still represents the uh, you know evil, the bad side. And if you think about a lot of modern literature, I'm thinking specifically of like Anne Rice's vampires. I mean, they're, mm. they're, they're very glamorous and sexy as well. And they're always seeking that redemption. So um, just, you know, what are your thoughts on, on the representation of the vampire in Bram Stoker's book? Yeah, I think one of the incredible things about Dracula is that from 1980, sorry, 1897, mm -hmm. the, the 1897 model, Dracula as a character is still very much alive and kicking. So as much as it's possible for a vampire to be since the end of the 19th century, it's been, it's just moved from novel to novel, from page to the stage and yeah. of course films, comic books, cartoons. Um, and there are over like 200 film adaptations of Dracula. Mm -hmm. The interesting thing is that if we look at the folklore, um, those figures that are vampiric are not necessarily very alluring. They're not charming. They're not aristocratic. Um, they're, and you know, they have fetid breath and they have long nails and they uh -huh. have, so it's interesting that then this count is um, quite, you know, charming in many ways. It has been represented in a charming way. Um, I think there's, there are a few films where Mina falls in love with Dracula, for example. Uh -huh. So obviously it must have been um, quite alluring to her. Um, and so that, that's really interesting as well. Um, yeah, so there are different types of representations of uh -huh. the vampire. And I think the, the closer we get to the time where we are now, the more we are understanding towards uh, the vampire and in, for example, I don't know, interview with the vampire or even Twilight, it, we are on the side of the vampire. So he's no longer really mm -hmm. the enemy. Um, so that's really, that's really cool, isn't it? Like that's something yeah. that's changing. I think that's a trend that we're seeing at the moment anyway in the films. I mean, for example, Disney films as well. If you look at Maleficent or, you, you know. Oh, yes. Like we get the backstory now. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to understand why are those characters evil were, you know, they're mm -hmm. not really intrinsically evil. Something happened to them. Something happened in their childhood. And so that's why we need to be understanding. Yeah. They're yeah. not bad. They're just misunderstood. Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah, that is a very interesting uh, modern trend in, in literature in terms of villains. I, I actually have to say I like it. I, I, I've always found, you know, quote unquote, hero protagonists, um, if they're one-sided, they're not very interesting they're, because they're not representative of, you know, 99% of human beings. You know, we all have the capacity for good and for bad in us. And I've always thought that's what makes villains oftentimes much more interesting because I think on many levels, probably most of us can relate at least once in a while to the villain of the piece. I mean, I yeah. you know, can certainly relate somewhat to Dracula and you know, he has this thirst for power. He wants to, you know, go to London and create more vampires. I'm not saying I want to go to London and create vampires, <laughs> but, you know, I think we could all relate to, you know, wanting to, I don't know what you want to call it, propagate the species, so to speak. I mean, that's why people get married and have children. So it's kind of a smaller theme. Yeah, absolutely. It's um, interesting to note, for example, um, you know, what was happening at the time and why, for example, um, this sort of storyline where the vampire is, I don't know, just more of a, a character taking center stage culturally, you know, what's, um, what's going on at that point in time when um, the book is being written mm -hmm. so there was a and obviously talking about food there was a rise in the imports of goods from the colonies oh sure yeah which meant that the products for example such as sugar became widely available to purchase in europe during mm -hmm. that, that century mm -hmm. and so in in the gothic literary scene vampires kind of became um we could say a symbol of that transformation that reflected these changes happening in the world perhaps um this could be an interpretation so Mm -hmm. um, in Dracula, for instance, we have this fear of the unknown, we have the fear of what is other, and that could be paralleled with the new products being imported as Britain was expanding as a colonial power. Mm -hmm. um, so another example, for example, at the time is, um, or before is John William Polidori's The Vampire, which was published mm -hmm. in 1819. 
with this character of Ruthven, which was um, supposedly a representation of Byron. And he's attacked by the Greeks, mm. which is an ironic echo of Byron's frequent references to the latter being subject to the destructive power mm -hmm. of the Turks. And same like in Camilla, Camilla uh, Sheridan Le Fanu's um, mm -hmm. novel of 1872, Laura and her father are colonizers in Styria, at, where the former becomes the victim of the vampire Mikala. So having been infected, Laura actually continues to travel towards the end mm -hmm. of the novel, conjuring this idea of movement and spreading what happened to her in Styria. So these monsters, it's nearly like they're being approached by outsiders in their own lands and they're infecting victims who are then carrying this otherness yes. in their bodies to different places. Mm -hmm. um, and that theme of xenophobia is very yeah. prevalent in, particularly in Dracula, but I, yes. I, did, I have not, I haven't read Carmilla in many years, but I'm gonna have to go back and mm -hmm. reread it now that you made my brain start thinking about that aspect of it. But it does make sense because as you said, you think about the time during which these books were written. I mean, there's colonialism, like you said, fear yeah. of the unknown, fear of the other. So it does make sense that there's this um, this this theme of, of of xenophobia that runs through the literature of the time. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, there's a sense of like hunger as well, which is you know you want to nearly they they vampires re-energize themselves through consumption, yeah. and you know there's this darkness, there's a darkness in this idea of energy exchange for the worse, where food and consumption create a, a shadow that the vampire lacks. And in a way, there were contrasting feelings attached to the colonies and uh, the exports as well. So perhaps this could be something that, you know, has to do with that. So hunger is a Gothic trope, um, which is quite visible in, um, in Dracula. Oh, but, sure, hunger, yeah. consumption. Yeah. Take, the taking in of, you know, an, an essence uh, to give yourself strength and nourishment. Oh yeah, the, there's a lot of different hunger and food analyses that could be made of this book. Yeah, mm -hmm. and I think it has, it has happened. I, I, I think as well, like there were some kind of influences as well when it came to um, other vampire figures that, um, that might have influenced um, Bram Stoker. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, um, yeah, definitely Carmilla. Um, and at the time, perhaps even, I don't know, the people that were around him, like Florence Balcom, his the wife, wife. That he went on to marry. I think she she was also courted by Oscar Wilde. And at some point. I oh, really? She, yes, she was. She was. Oh. She then went for she went for Bram Stoker. So they so Oscar Wilde. Well, that's probably dead just as well for her. You know, I can't imagine <laughs> Oscar Wilde making any woman a good husband. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, so I I think that they were, but they were still friends. You know, afterwards. Um, and but I think this idea of yes, people um, sharing sharing the women in many mm -hmm. ways. Um, and this blood transfusion, I don't know, perhaps had something to do as well with the, with some experience that he had in, in real life. Yeah. Um, you know, three different men. Um, I think Lucy Westerner at some point receives different proposals of marriage on the same mm -hmm. day by Dr. Seward. Dr. And then, Seward, Quincy, yeah, Quincy, Quincy Morris and Lord Homewood. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, they well, and she also. Speaking you know, of which, she also gets blood transfusions from all three of them as well. I mean, there's definitely some, uh, yeah. you know, some literature. What I always find interesting about this book is that, it, and vampire books in general, is that there's that there's such. I don't want to say it's overt because it's not overt, but there's the sexuality is just so like potent, you know, and and you know, and perhaps you know again because it was written in a more repressed time, you know, there's a lot of, you know, different ways you could read it. But I've always, to me, when I started reading Dracula, I read it, I think when I was 17. And that was the first thing that struck me is this whole concept of the, the vampire penetrating the woman, you know, the man penetrating the woman, and then the woman becoming, you know, much more sexual as both Mina and yeah, Lucy yeah. do after uh, they're bitten by the vampire. So, uh, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. I think as a as a monster probably the vampire is one of the sexiest because if you look at for example Frankenstein or werewolves um they're not particularly they don't inspire sensuality whereas no. a vampire might you know might 
depending on how it is depicted because sometimes if it's depicted in I think Nosferatu is like not a very sexy depiction yeah for example of, uh, of the vampire and you get yeah. others that are very no, the, the vampire in um Salem's Law that we were talking about was it a uh, Straker yeah yes yeah, Straker I mean I I think the way he's described in the book and I, I am thinking of the of the movie as well he's very much uh reminiscent of the Nosferatu vampire mm -hmm. he's not remotely attractive or sexy at all no, no exactly mm -hmm. and um but instead in I mean, there's it's a mixture in in Bram Stoker's Dracula the actual novel I think it's a mixture he you know has a certain savoir-faire that he manifests at mm -hmm. meal times for example going back to the food so he unveils food with a flourish it's him always doing everything and mm -hmm. um making sure that Jonathan is fed and you know there's gold service and etc mm -hmm. so you know that's quite attractive in a way he's not something yeah. you know he's not eating from a piss in the in a well or somewhere you know no no he's, he's getting fed he knows, he knows chicken and salad and cheese and toke yeah. wine i mean you know that, that sounds like a pretty good meal to me exactly and he's you know this flourish and this this um form formality that he has um but there is no substance to it a bit like him like ultimately is you know monstrous and he yeah. is mimicking perhaps um something in order to enter into mm -hmm. the uh, network of how human beings um relate to each other and what they find acceptable like he yeah. doesn't really care about sitting down and eating in fact Jonathan no no he's Arthur, very specific about that he says i i do not yeah. yes mm -hmm. no exactly he mm -hmm. offers also you know a, um, smoking equipped to smoke you know cigars or cigarettes i can't remember exactly which but um he doesn't participate so he's he sure. knows what the what he should be doing but he doesn't actually take part um and that's because it is a clue into you know he's not really who he makes out to be yeah. and um, he's very he very much represents like as we were saying earlier the other you know, he's able yeah. to represent himself as a you know quote unquote normal human being but when it comes down to it, when you start to scratch the surface, the more you read, mm -hmm. the more you realize he is, he's anything but. So yes, he's a, he's a fascinating character. I, I've always, uh, always found Count Dracula quite, uh, quite interesting, quite personable. Yeah. Yes. I think he's like the leader of the pack when it comes to monsters in, in anything, yes. you know, even in cartoons, I think is mm -hmm. it um, Hotel Transylvania, he's like, he's like the owner of the hotel. Mm -hmm. He's in like, Dracula. <laughs> I don't right? know. Yeah. Form, he is the head of the monsters, really. You, you yeah. may rarely get another monster that's above Dracula. He is the ultimate. Um, oh, yeah. I, I, every single person I've ever, I, I, you know, did an informal poll of my friends and family before this episode. And I was like, well, you know, when, when I say, when I say movie monster, who do you think of? And nine out of 10 of them said Dracula or a vampire. Yeah. Dracula, vampire. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's just such a huge part of our collective conscious at this point. It is. And I wonder of the works that influenced Bram Stoker when he was writing it. Mm -hmm. We have obviously The Vampire by John Polidori, which was published in 1819. We have Varney mm -hmm. the Vampire, which was published in 1845, and then Carmilla in 1872. And they are all aristocratic vampires. Mm -hmm. So the vampire is an aristocrat. And if you think about it, like to get someone to go all the way to Transylvania, um, to a lot, to a faraway castle, mm -hmm. um, you'd have to exert some sort of power, and mm -hmm. that will only come with being of a more elevated or a, an elevated social class. So it would have sure. to be a count or someone important. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's behind as well. What otherwise it wouldn't be very um, intelligible. Like, well, why would she? Why would anyone go all the way there mm -hmm. um, just to kind of take care of the sale of a of properties somewhere else sure, sure, have yeah. to be someone quite powerful perhaps that's that could be an interpretation as mm -hmm. well but it's it's just such a it's it's interesting as well because the way that you know trans transylvania is described in the book i mean one of the things that's that struck me about the book for many years is it it reads very much like a travel log it it's yeah, yeah. The descriptions of the carpathian mountains um you know, it, it is again, again, it's going back to that concept of the other. It's just, it's it's this very foreign wild place, the way that Jonathan Harker describes it. Um, 
And I noticed that even the references of the food, you know, the food references, you know, as he starts to go further and further into the Carpathians, you know, yeah. the descriptions of the food become, you know, a little bit more exotic. And you know, he talks about the kebabs and then the uh, pap paprika handle. Yes. My personal oh. favorite. I, I, you know, I love, I love that Jonathan wrote down all these food references. I have a feeling, he, I have a sneaking suspicion he was a secret foodie. Yeah, I think he's really sweet. He always thinks about Mina and even the, the descriptions of the of the landscape that you were mentioning as well. That's one of my favorite parts because he talks about um, the, the paths being serpentine, so like a snake and then snake like vertebra. And before you even realize it, you're already envisioning and imagining monstrous beings, you know, yeah. like a snake, something which isn't human. And um, as he moves further and further away from the West towards the East and into the territories of what was the, the formerly the Ottoman mm -hmm. Empire, we see how the food also gets more pungent, it gets wilder, yes. and the strangeness starts turning into superstition. Mm -hmm. And there's this strange kind of dynamic where we think, oh, superstition isn't really, that's not logical, it's not rational. Mm -hmm. But in the end, superstition does help, it does um, mm -hmm. it does serve its purpose in that particular instance because he should have listened and there's a reason why there's garlic in the food and there's a reason mm -hmm. why you know we can we we see all of this um, so before he even reaches Dracula's castle he's eating meals quite consistently and as you say he's making notes of like nice recipes mm -hmm. and the paprika handle recipe will be one that we feature in the gothic cookbook as well so we can see from his supper and his breakfast and his dinners that he takes the time to actually describe them um, so it's important in this sense, you know, that there is, um, in a way, some normality and that is displayed through the food. Mm -hmm. uh, the local cuisine is providing him with large amounts of garlic, but he has no idea of what that means at this stage. Sure. Yeah. So that's really, I find it always. In your, in your research, did you ever come across uh, where Bram Stoker got the idea to incorporate garlic as, as a, an element of the story, like why the garlic would be anathema to a vampire. That was always something that I thought was, you know, looking at it from a food perspective, but then I started yeah. really to realize but there's, I don't remember there being any kind of like reference to why in the book and I, that I remember. Um, I was wondering if you had come across anything. Um, I presume maybe it was to do with some folkloric element that he might have researched um, okay. because he did do some research in, into the folklore and he might have found that that was something that that was done um but yes I don't have a precise answer to that okay yeah it's there as well that he he mentions a lot I think it's like the othering you know things that you wouldn't yes. normally use so um yeah uh, he 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 kind of puts it down to those elements you know what is causing his wild dreams what is causing him causing him to hear these dogs barking um and it's to do with the, with the food mm -hmm. yeah um, but the, these kind of gar garlic has been something that we because it's um even in Italy where I'm from we call it like a small uh, pharmacy and it, what it means is that it's good for you so people would use that as a way to contrast any illness and therefore in generation through to generation it just becomes some since I think a symbol of something that's will protect you from evil spirits um, okay so it might be a mixture of kind of that so I can't precisely say where he got it from though but probably okay that, that, that was might have been a well well-known thing because people used to hang them up in homes as well to protect from evil spirits didn't they um, some people mm -hmm. still do probably yeah 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 kind of like what a lot of people do with salt putting salt across exactly. the perimeter of their doors and their windows to repel evil spirits. And yeah, okay, that makes sense. Yeah. And I wonder if with salt as well, because it was something that was so precious before, it has maintained this kind of value to it. So you yeah. would use it as a form of protection because it's so, because it's important mm -hmm. perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. And it was used as a monetary unit for, for many, many years in the past as well. That's how valuable it was. So yeah, I always find that the... History mm. of salt, very interesting. Also, from um, Bram Stoker would have probably been aware of this illness called porphyria, mm -hmm. which is 
um, it's an irregularity of the production of um, this, this chemical in the blood, so um, it, which it includes also the erosion of lips and gums and a dis disfigurement of the skin, and it could it would make you look like a corpse-like figure. Mm -hmm. And I think interestingly, people who suffer from porphyria also have an intolerance to food that have a high ah. content like garlic. So that might have okay. been something which. Um, which influenced him, but um, I think also his, his, he heard stories from his mother. Joker, um, yeah. Yes, so his mother, Charlotte, she was from Sligo and which suffered a cholera epidemic in the 1830s. And um, okay. she was there as a child. So she described the city being filled with walking dead. And um, wow. she describes a ride in a black coach as well, trying to get away from Sligo to another city, but they were turned away because everyone was afraid of them uh -huh. and afraid that they were carrying the disease. So they turned back. And actually that coach ride is in the early chapters of Dracula because of Dracula, that's right. Isn't mm -hmm. it, that carries Jonathan Harker from the inn to Cast Castle Dracula mm -hmm. and everyone's afraid of it. And Dracula is the coachman really, which is could be considered an embodiment of, of death in the, in the novel. Mm -hmm. Um, so you and I mentioned I think also Stoker's childhood illness as well so yeah and lit. isn't there isn't there a myth in Irish folklore or mythology about uh the black carriage bringing death I seem to remember reading something like that many many years ago and being that Bram Stoker mm -hmm. is you know of Irish descent that makes seems like that would make sense to me that he would incorporate elements of that oh maybe okay. I think, um, is it I think that it's meant to bring you bring news of death, but of someone that's close to you, something so like a, that. It could so be, it's a harbinger of death, but it's not death itself. The sound of a coach, even like yeah. Uh, yeah. Coaches of I always remember the coach in Jamaica in, or you know, coaches are quite a bit hit and miss in the sense in, you don't know who's inside. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, It'd be Dracula side of the road, you know. You hear a coach approach, who knows what will happen to you. They might help right. you, or they might try to kill you, or <laughs> they might contain an evil priest, or they might contain, you know, yeah. death. Who knows? Who knows? So, yeah, the coach in general so, is also quite a, a gothic um, yes. element, isn't it? So, yeah. many, so many options for the coach. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> who is your favorite character in the book of uh, Dracula? Oh, I just, I love Jonathan Harker. <laughs> We had Jonathan Harker. Oh dear, Jonathan. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, because I think Dracula has like a set of characters, but it opens up with him. So inevitably, mm -hmm. I always feel like you know he is the 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 thread. Um, so there are other very there are probably more interesting characters for sure. I don't know. I kind of like Renfield, or Mina, or you know they're yeah. all, they're all great characters really. But, I like um, Renfield. I just I just I, I he's quite endearing. Him and his, his obsession with eating bugs. I do love Renfield. The novel been written as well, just from his point of view. Um, I can't remember who wrote it, but there was a novel just from his point of view. So there's a so back of I'll have to look for that. Perspectives from the point of view of different characters. There's one mm -hmm. about Mina as well. Who yeah, I read that one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so yeah. very interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think I read that one several years ago because I always thought she was a thought she was a very interesting character and, and I not I don't want to say one-sided but definitely you you know you can tell she's written from a man's yeah, perspective yeah. well obviously yeah, yeah. but that's why I kind of like this uh another modern literary uh theme that we see is um books like this that have a, a wider array of characters but you only get the perspective of a few of them. So then you get these books that are written from the perspective of other characters who maybe don't have as much of a voice. That's another thing I love. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was like Mina. Yeah, I think it's great. Why not? It's just different spin-offs and people yeah. remember the films more than the book probably. You know, this book isn't that easy to read. Like I even, I have mm -hmm. to say, it's not a pleasant read in the sense, it's just, you know, one of those books that. A little yeah. bit like the woman in white, I found the same thing. This epistolary style and yeah. it's a series of elements that I just, yeah, I don't find it a fluid read, if that makes sense. Like it I don't does. read it. Um, much rather watch a film. Um, oh yeah. 
comes to novels like this, to be honest, yeah. but there are some descriptions which are really, really wonderful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is a bit of a slog to read. Um, it's, you know, you're right, it isn't easy. Um, and it isn't really scary, if you think about it. I mean, if, I know you said the image of Dracula crawling down the wall stood out to you as a child, and, and yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a very evocative image. But if you read it, especially now yeah. as an adult, I, you know, you read it again, and it does have some very striking imagery, um, but it, it isn't scary. The movies are probably much scarier than the book. So. Yeah. <laughs> What's your favorite of all of the uh, film adaptations of uh, Dracula? I love Nosferatu, the 19th, I think it's 1932. Um, the one that's um, Max yeah, von Schreck. Oh, I love it. Yeah. And um, yeah, there's something about that. I just, um, I really enjoy, enjoy mm -hmm. watching that. I've watched it so many times. Yeah. yeah I do like yeah. that. Did that one is a good the, one as well. Did you see the recent BBC one? The, no. The Gattis one. Oh, I'll have to, I'll have to look it up. Yeah. I love, I love a good vampire adaptation. Yeah. The, the great thing like about um, reading the actual book is that it's more that you can compare and see, oh, this is what really happened. Oh, mm -hmm. this is, oh, so Mina and Jonathan are okay in the end and they named their son after, uh, you know, after um, um, Quincy, yeah, Quincy, yeah. And, mm -hmm. you know, and other things that don't happen in the films. Um, yeah, so it's, uh, yeah, it's really, really um, just interesting to see that, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. My favorite film adaptation was uh, Francis Ford Coppola's adaptation of it with Gary Oldman playing Dracula. Yeah. I just, I love that one so much. It's just such an opulent film. It's beautiful. Um, yeah. And then everybody likes to slam on Keanu Reeves, but I think Keanu Reeves was the perfect Jonathan Harker because Jonathan Harker mm -hmm. was sort of a little, you know, diffident yeah. and, you know, I don't want to say effeminate, but, you know, he certainly, you know, didn't come across as a big, strong man the way that, you know, Seward and Quincy Morris and Homewood and Van Helsing did. So I, 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 I don't know. I thought, I thought he was good, but um, what I thought was interesting about that adaptation and I loved it, but I was interesting mm -hmm. is that they give this entire backstory about Dracula and Mina, and that is nowhere to be found in the book. I mean, oh, yeah. they don't even really explain why he fixates on on Jonathan and Mina. I guess Jonathan, you could understand because he's he's there. You know, he goes to the yeah, castle yeah. to arrange the paperwork for the property sale in London. But you don't ever understand why he develops this obsession with with Mina. So that that is yeah. an element of the couple of film that I really did love. Yes, no, I agree with you. Yeah, and it's nice to see how you know what people probably find interesting and want to focus on and then develop into something which is mm -hmm. um, in a different media but sure. um, well and it yeah. also goes back to what we were talking about earlier is he's giving the giving the villain a backstory so that he's a he's a bit more sympathetic yeah absolutely mm -hmm. and um what about count Dracula? have you ever watched that <laughs> no i haven't <laughs> but i'm going to now now that you mentioned it now that you recommended it ellie yeah, it's one of my favorites. Dracula. Um, there's a, a serial here in uh, the States called Count Chocula. Oh, wow. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 Count Chocula. Mm. Gotta love that, right? So many, so many spin-offs. Like, there are just... Oh, I know. I don't know how many books are still being published now, which originally hark back to, you know, to Dracula. It's, it's mm -hmm. really incredible, really. Yeah. It's the most successful, I have to say, in terms of wanting to carry on and retell stories about this um, this monster. You know, it's not, it really is like never, he's never going to die. <laughs> I don't know. I, and, and I think that, you know, well, yeah, he is immortal in his own way, you know, both on the page and, and sort of in the collective cultural consciousness of people. But it kind of it makes a lot of sense if you think about it, because I just think, the, the figure of the vampire. I mean, it's been with us since time immemorial and in, in various, you know, various ways. Yeah. Um, but I, I really think that this kind of more modern concept of the vampire, I think it really speaks to us for a variety of reasons, you know, many of which we talked about already, the concept of the other, you know, this concept yeah. of xenophobia, which unfortunately, you know, we're seeing in our modern day culture, things are not as different as we would like to think. Right. But, um, you know that, that you know there's it's also i and this might be something you know more about but i always think that like reading victorian novels and seeing them as sort of a microcosm of of what was going on in society at the time 
you know, is, is, is really interesting because you see all these different elements that were happening at the time that the book was written. These yeah. concepts of, you know, fear of the other, colonialism, um, you know, fear of women's sexuality, this, you know, yeah. wanting to just kind of keep women in this little, you know, this little, this little circle and not, you know, not allow them to be human beings. They had to be these perfect yeah. creatures, uh, you know, in this bubble and they had to be protected at all costs. And uh, so just a, it was just a, you know, just a really interesting, like I said, microcosm and, and it's reflective. I still think it's reflective of a lot of things we're seeing in our, in our modern culture, because we're seeing definitely seeing a backlash of things like that now. Yeah, I think you're right. And, you know, and this is also reflected in, in food and how, what we do with food and banning certain foods because they come from certain countries mm -hmm. and it's nearly all connected to that, isn't it? To globalization and how, how, we, how we view things and the provenance of things and how we link that to human beings as well. And that's just a topic that will never, that will never die. That will always continue. It's um, really at the basis of the struggle that we have with other human beings who are different. Mm -hmm. And that's yeah. never going to change because we will always find people who are different. Like, sure. So, um, so yeah. And, every, and, and food is food is one of those universal things. Everybody, every culture has has food. Every person has to eat. I mean, it's yeah. it's the most ubiquitous. I think food is the most ubiquitous part of of culture. You know, across the board. Yeah. I mean, more than religion, more than politics, more than even literature. It's 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 food. Yeah. Many, many thanks go out to the marvelous Ali Pino for being my guest today and for talking so eloquently about the Gothic, the concept of vampires in literature, and the food references in the novel. Like we were discussing, it's the detailed references to food that Jonathan Harker makes in his journal that stand out to me and obviously to Ali as well. While Jonathan is traveling to Transylvania to meet Count Dracula, he makes note of something called mamaliga, which is a type of oatmeal or polenta robber steak, which appears to be a type of kebab, and paprika hendel, which turns out to be chicken paprika. Like I said, I think Jonathan was a secret foodie personally. So I was inspired to recreate paprika hendel, which as Ali and I talked about during her interview, I do hope Count Dracula would approve of. It's got enough garlic. So to make paprika hendel, you will need six boneless chicken thighs cut into cubes, salt and pepper for seasoning, about two to three tablespoons of olive oil, two tablespoons of flour, one tablespoon of butter, one tomato bouillon cube or a tablespoon of tomato bouillon powder, take your pick, one tablespoon of smoked Spanish paprika. And yes, I know it's not Hungarian, but they have vampires in Spain too, don't they? You'll also need a half a teaspoon of cayenne pepper, one onion cut into long strips, one red bell pepper also cut into thin strips, six to eight cloves of garlic, if not more, thinly sliced, one cup of sour cream, about a cup and a half of chicken stock, half a cup of water, or you can substitute white wine, and egg noodles. And this is what you do. Season the chicken pieces with salt and pepper and heat the olive oil in a heavy cast iron pan and brown the chicken pieces for about five minutes. Set them aside. And then in the same pan, add the butter, onions, red bell pepper, garlic, flour, paprika, and cayenne pepper. Stir together briskly and whisk to get any, to actually get rid of any lumps that the flour might have. And to also get rid of any lingering flour taste. You'll probably want to do this for a good five minutes. Next, you want to add in the tomato bouillon here so that it adds a savory note to the mixture. Chicken paprika can be a little bit bland if you don't spice it up. You could add tomatoes instead of the tomato bouillon, but that's your call. The bouillon will add the desired tang without overwhelming the overall taste of the dish. It's not a tomato dish. Next, add the chicken stock in the water or wine if you're using it and bring to a low simmer. Add in the chicken pieces, stir everything around to mix everything, cover it and leave it to simmer gently for, I'd say about half an hour, maybe 45 minutes. The idea is to cook the chicken thoroughly. After about the th first half an hour, remove the lid so that the liquid can evaporate somewhat. Taste for seasoning and adjust if necessary. 
And at this point, you want to add in your uncooked egg noodles. The idea being that they can cook in the broth and absorb some of the liquid, which will add both to their flavor and will help with the texture and the flavor of the overall dish itself. Once the noodles have cooked, I would say about maybe 10 minutes, add in the sour cream, then stir everything together and leave on a very low heat for another five minutes, stirring occasionally so that the cream doesn't curdle. Nothing worse than curdled cream, right? And next you serve it, preferably on blood red plates with blood red wine in goblets with candles burning with the menacing shadow of Count Dracula stroking your neck as you eat. I must say it's a really delicious dish, very richly spiced with the smoky paprika and just that hint of cayenne giving it a little bit of a bite. And then the sour cream just offsets it so nicely. The red peppers and onion aren't overly cooked and still have a little bit of crunch and the garlic gives that added oomph that our garlic does. Definitely something to make again. Well, that's it for this latest episode, constant listeners. I greatly enjoyed talking with Allie and sharing my method for pepper couch handle, and I really hope you did as well. Please consider supporting Allie's wonderful book and follow her on social media, the links for which are all in the show notes. If you do decide you want to buy a copy of the book, you can use the code GOTH, oh, Gothic Pod 10. Haha, <laughs> I can't read. So that's Gothic Pod 10, G O. T-H-I-C-P-O-D-10 to get 10% off on the book. So go on out and buy it, folks. See you soon, my footy friends, and stay away from those vampires. If you enjoyed this episode, you'll probably love my blog. So head on over to foodinbooks.com. That's F-O-O-D-I-N-B-O-O-K-S.com. And check it out. There's lots of great content there. You can also like me on Facebook or follow me on Instagram or both. The links to both are in the show notes. As always, thanks for listening.